Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. This is Cheerful Book Club. Conversations with the writers shaping the way we think about our world. Ed Miliband, Jeff Lloyd, and friends spend time with the people behind today's smartest writing. In association with Vintage, read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. Hello, this episode of Cheerful Book Club is me and Ed talking to Renieto Lodge about why I'm no longer talking to white people about race, which is an incredibly important book. We talk about why it was needed, the problems of structural racism in Britain, and what Rennie's learned since writing the book. Cheerful Book Club, talking to the writers, exploring the biggest ideas of our time. Support for Cheerful Book Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. We're talking about Rennie's uh, book, which has done just tremendously well, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, which, I mean, the whole thing started as a blog post and and you you write about this and and what the blog post was was sort of you encountering so much defensiveness and denial about white privilege that you as an individual just thought I'm I'm exhausted by this I can't have these conversations anymore and I was wondering how much the book has shifted that um if you feel just the nature of that type of conversation has got better I do think that the the type of person who I would have felt I was banging my head against a brick wall to attempt to try and convince that structural racism is an issue generally accepts that it is now, you know, and I hope that the book has um, been a part of that for many of those people. So, you know, that blog post that I wrote was after my time in the feminist movement um, and I rushed into feminist activism at sort of like age 19 at university, you know, green-eyed, Green-eyed? I'm trying to say naive, you, you basically. Green, green yeah, 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 not green-eyed, but anyway. Green, naive. Wide-eyed. Yes, wide-eyed, yes. uh, naive, excitable, and with this just general feeling that, like, all of the women in this movement who, who I was meeting, they were going to be, you know, allies for life, and we all got each other. And um, the further I got into the movement, I realised that that wasn't the case and that an understanding of racism was a real barrier, actually, to solidarity and understanding between each other. Um, and it was so disappointing, I think, to know white women in particular who were so sharp and analytical on gender inequality. But when you try to raise issues of race inequality um, with them or even question some of the priorities of the broader feminist movement, which seemed to be skewed towards the interests of white and middle-class women. Um, when you tried to raise that, you were shut down and told that you were being divisive or, or a problem. And I think it was even more disappointing because, you know, as feminists who were also working inside a broader, like, progressive movement, like, you would get that same reaction from men when you, when you said, oh, gosh, yeah, like, sexism is here or these 
these like priorities and interests don't actually benefit women, men would respond and be like, well, you're being divisive, you're being selfish, you're being this, that and the other. So it was so disappointing to see that reaction from white women. How much of it do you think is is people not wanting to look at darkness and in, in themselves and say I'm then thinking thinking I'm not one of the bad ones it can't be me it's the it's the other people who are the bad ones. Uh, I think that's certainly the case, you know. And as I have been not just touring the book and speaking to readers but also during my time as an activist as a feminist activist and a anti-racism activist like I've had those moments of confronting my own like obliviousness myself so I can understand the feeling um and I think that it's not necessarily a bad thing when you're confronted with obliviousness about like a systemic issue that never even affected you so you didn't think about it like that's not necessarily the bad thing it's about the bad thing is how you respond how open you are the next step like are you going to believe people when they say oh like this massive structural issue is affecting us uh, negatively, and perhaps you may be implicated in it. Like, do you believe people, or do you say, actually, no, this is all in your head, and you're bullying me, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. or you're being destructive to the movement and stuff? Something that crops up a lot in the writing around the book and the reviews of the book is there's there's been a lot of this type of writing in the states, but less so in in Britain. And I've heard you talk in interviews as well that in this country we can think, oh, it's you know they've got the real problem over there in the united states where where do you think that comes from well i know that in my own personal experience which i don't speak about at length in the book but i do mention in the book that i found it strange actually to look back on my own experience of education you know i went to school in south london and then north london that every black history month the reference points were african-american um so like the first like entry point of understanding what race inequality was and how racism affected people's lives was about African-Americans. So that sets you up for for thinking, okay, well, that's not really an issue here. But strangely, like anecdotally, you know, in your communities around you, particularly when I was in, in Tottenham, because I moved to Tottenham when I was like six or seven, you'd hear people in the community speak about horrible injustices and vicious treatment but what's the word it wasn't canonized it wasn't part of the country's understanding of itself and that was a lot of what that first chapter was well, in you, the book like yeah. essentially just the amount of people have come to me and said we knew all of this stuff happened but this is like the first mainstream like representation of our lives during that period well i was thinking about this and i don't know if it's the same for you but you, you mentioned black history month and it cro- crops up in the book as well it it was founded in this country in the late 80s I the think. late 80s so, yes. so in all the history i learned in school and i'm sure it was the same for you ed i, I don't remember learning any black british history at all there might have been a little bit about the civil rights movement in the states well, i, I but- totally agree and i thought one of the really striking things i learned about in the book was the bristol bus boycott i mean we talk about rosa parks in school mm. but nobody talks about the bristol bus boycott do they it's not like that's taught to people well with the exception of perhaps your listeners who literally live in bristol because maybe you should <laughs> say what happened in the bristol yeah bar. so um i'm gonna try and make a long story short a man called paul stevenson um essentially instigated a boycott against bristles buses in the late 60s because there was a color bar like on him driving the buses <laughs> yes, on, on, he was he, they refused to hire him as a driver because he was black well basically. not him but uh, another it was a young jamaican man right. so he orchestrated a, 
a boycott because and and sent somebody for a job interview just to test whether or not there was a colour bar because lots of black people in the city had applied to work on the buses and nobody ever got the job. So I think like he and some other activists called up to ask for a job interview, gave a name and the bus company was like, yeah, yeah, there's vacancies. And as soon as the, the man turns up for the interview, they're like, oh, actually, sorry, no, it's <laughs> positions being filled. So that was their evidence. And they had a successful campaign they against did, yeah. this colour bar. And they ha- they got loads of people on board and all the students, obviously, but also I think like the Jamaican High Commissioner, <laughs> if I can remember correctly, although it's definitely more accurate in the book because it's, it's been a while since I wrote it. And the the book, in that chapter of the book, there's there's a potted, there's a sort of whistle-stop tour through black history. Just, I mean, it gives an example. There are so many of these stories. I was wondering what it is like to be born in a country and not see yourself reflected in the history you're learning at school. Confusing and frustrating, I think. You know, so the time when I started to really learn about what it meant to be a black person who was born in Britain was when I was at university through a module that I had to choose to take, you know, Um, and there was less than 20 of us in the class. Um, My lecturer is always annoyed when I don't mention him. (laughs) Alan Rice, shout out Alan Rice. (laughs) He was the one who was teaching the module on the transatlantic slave trade um, at my alma mater. It just absolutely blew my mind. I was like, I mean, I hadn't thought that much about not knowing that history until I learned it. And then, you know, I went to uni in the Northwest. So we went to the uh, International Slavery Museum in Liverpool and my mind was blown. I was sort of very moved by what you said to your mum when you were four. I wonder if you can, which is in the book. Yes. Because I think it's brought, it's paints such a picture of the sort of hidden racism which a child sort of imbibes. Absolutely. Well, you know, I was watching television and I was reading books and I was, was an avid reader. I was reading when I was like four. My mum loves to shout about that. Um, and so I turned to her, having consumed all of this or perhaps engaged with all of this culture and said, well, when am I going to turn white? Because that's clearly like, I mean, obviously I didn't phrase it like this, but there's, those are representations of humanity around me and I'm a human being and I'm like everybody else. So that's clearly going to happen for me at some point, you know, and she had to let me know that no, that that was not going to happen. And that was in the mid 1990s when mm-hmm. you were four, correct? Yeah. Yeah. But like everyone. So quite recently it, from yeah. that, from our yeah. point of view. But everyone you were seeing on TV as a kid, even then, you you felt like if you saw somebody who looked like you, they were a baddie or they were a sassy sidekick. Yeah, but they weren't the center of the story. They yeah. weren't the they weren't the person in the story from from whom their eyes like we saw the world. You know. Yeah. So it's not like there weren't any, but they were sidelined. Did you see any positive? representation if you think back are are there examples that really stand out to you i remember being excited by so solid crew in 2001 (laughs) right right (laughs) i always talk about this well not not often but i uh did a uh thing with the bbc recently where i was talking about it um because it's like wow black british people on top of the pops right (laughs) you know like that was exciting to me um so yeah there were people here and there, you know, put it about perhaps the odd television kids TV presenter or something. I reached to America a lot. Yeah. And, and just white very much seemed like the, the neutral or the, the default. Yeah. There's a phrase from an African-American writer, a great, whose name um, like escapes me, in which they say that, you know, you see yourself through the dominant culture's eyes. So, you know, you see yourself through that 
that lens of difference. And then you end up feeling like an extra or a side character then. I don't know. I mean, when I think about how I felt during those times, I didn't feel particularly aggrieved, but I felt confused. Right. You know, I would. I felt confused. Um, you, you mentioned something that loomed very large as you were growing up was the Stephen Lawrence case. Can, can you talk to me a little bit about that and the, the part it played you know, in, in your childhood and, and teens? Well, um, you know, when he was murdered, uh, I was essentially a toddler living around the same area of London. And so, and when two of the killers were convicted, I was in my early 20s. So in terms of like reporting on that case, it spanned a lot of like the formative years of my life. The bit that affected me the most was in 2012 when two of those killers were convicted. And it f- felt to me like, a release, you know, like a, like very overdue justice was being done. And then what was, and this is when I was aggrieved, I was incensed, like raging at the fact that post the conviction of two of those killers, the sort of like news discussion shifted from that to Diane Abbott's racist against white people. Can you remind people what, what, what <laughs> So happened? the journey was... Um, there was lots of discussion about that. People were, people were tweeting. This was the early days of Twitter. And um, there was a discussion about the writer Bim Adewumni said, I do wish everyone would stop saying the black community, though. Diane Abbott tweeted back to her. She said, white people love playing divide and rule. We should not play their game. Hashtag tactics as old as colonialism. I'm going to read from the book now. At this point, all hell broke loose. The news agenda swiftly changed. No longer were the newspaper editorials, radio packages and TV news people discussing Stephen Lawrence, the nuances of institutional racism or the realities and fears of growing up black in the UK. Now the news story was about racism against white people. Racism goes both ways, Abbott's detractors insisted. Writing in the Daily Telegraph, journalist Toby Young wrote, Imagine the uproar if an equally prominent white conservative MP said something similar about black people on Twitter. Even Diane's Labour Party allies were defending her, couldn't help but describe her tone as robust and combative, as if their problem was with the tone of her tweet rather than the injustice it was confronting. And while Britain's white conservatives were insisting that this was reverse racism that was as unforgivable as murdering an unarmed black teenager, Britain's white liberals were terribly concerned that Abbott's harsh phrasing might undo all of her hard work, insisting that adding the word some to her tweet might have softened the impact of it. So, so the murder, the murder of a black boy, which had taken, you know, getting on for decades to secure a conviction, all of a sudden became about the w- whether the language uh, a black MP was using was appropriate. Yeah, I was incensed by that, and at the time I was a, a student union leader, and I was sat at my desk and I couldn't concentrate. I was just fuming, and because I think that the conviction of those two two men who had been walking free, just chilling, like for 20 years was so long overdue. And I really thought that it was going to provoke a conversation that I felt the country desperately needed. Do you remember anything about that at the time, Ed? About the Diane thing? Yeah, you would have been leader at the time. Yeah, and I think I, I sort of should confess, I think I played some role in Diane to making some apology for the remark. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Do you want to elaborate? Uh, I suppose reading your book and sort of then rereading the context of the tweet, you know, you could, you sort of, uh, 
it gives a different it gives a different perspective. I think the problem at the time was it seemed to be stereotyping sort of white people in general. But but look, I, I sort of understand the point that you're making that the you know it's a sort of you got to understand the context in which she was saying it and the context of the situation. Yeah, but I think also in terms of uh, let's say what's worse <laughs> or like what's perhaps even more newsworthy, <laughs> um, it felt very terrible that suddenly her tweet took up a lot of space and media attention um, when actually, in my opinion, something monumental had happened. And in comparison, her tweet wasn't monumental. Would I have tweeted if I was an MP? Probably not. I, w- I would have said it around the pub table, though. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, but I didn't. I think in comparison to sure. the, the conviction of those of those murderers, it was it it was literally but not I'm, important. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to think about what we what we learn about the not so much about her tweet, but from the. You see, you see. I think the context for people thinking about the conviction was good thing to but but it it sort of it, it kind of reminds me of what you said it makes me think of what you said earlier which is i guess the the thing the, the perspective that your book gives is when mcpherson finds institutional racism in the police it's almost like i mean it's a good thing that mcpherson happened obviously but it's almost like it then confines it to the police <laughs> and I, I suppose what struck me earlier on is the gap between people thinking well, institutional racism is something that happens over there, not over here. Do you know what I mean? So it's almost like it's almost like the Stephen Lawrence thing was it was sort of uncontroversial that it was good they were convicted, the police had been racist and all that or relatively uncontroversial. But I suppose what you're saying is it should have provoked a broader discussion about not just sort of racism in the police, but racism everywhere. I want to move on to something you talk about. So I I I do think you know, people will grasp the idea of white privilege, but what you do in the book so well is is spell out how that can affect a life, and you um, you give a, a, an example of a black boy going through life. Um, I wondered if you could sort t- talk us through some of the obstacles that are faced that maybe pe- people wouldn't sort of automatically be aware of. Okay, so. That part of the book where, you know, I come up with the idea of a hypothetical black boy, it was informed actually by my time working at the Rani Me Trust because, you know, you, you're working at a race equality think tank. You're exposed to all this data all the time coming out from all sorts of different organisations that speaks to just drastic inequalities along race racial lines in institutions that we expect to treat us fairly. And, and you follow it from, from sort of cradle to grave, really. I do indeed, yeah. And some of that data's going to be old now, you know. Some of it was old when I was writing the book, and I'm sure some of it's been refreshed at this point. So if there's ever a new edition of the book, I'll go off and do some updating. Um, but, but, you know, what I, I found, you know, when compiling this data was that, you know, in 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 the school system. So something that really stuck out to me, and I can't remember the date of of this report, but it was the in year six, so, you know, when the kids are doing their SATs, age 11, um, black children were routinely undermarked by their own teachers. And that was something that was um, remedied by anonymous marking. So when the papers are then sent off mm-hmm. and, and the, the people are divorced from knowing who the students are, the marks would go up. But their own teachers, yeah. people there with day in, day out, would 
sort of mark, mark them down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I found in in university, um, you know, the the attainment gaps wide widely known now um, that black students in particular were far less likely to get you know the highest marks in university compared to their white counterparts. And for me, I think one of the more galling things because. You know, for a very long time before I was a jobbing journalist, I was a job seeker and I was never successful at it. <laughs> it was uh, so the, the Department of Work for Work and Pensions, two thousand and nine. They did this big survey, and like I say, it's old. It's ten years ago now, but I don't, I don't think anything's been done at the same scale. Um, you know, they sent two thousand CVs out to uh, you know jobs in the public and private sector. Some with British sounding names, like white British sounding names. Some with African and Asian sounding names, um, and but the CVs had similar qualifications and experience, so they sent them out, got got them back, you know, acceptances, rejections, and they found that if you had an African and Asian-sounding name, you were far less likely to be called into a job interview than somebody with a white British-sounding name, despite the similar qualifications and experience. So, you know, what I tried to do with some of that data was really be like, wow, disadvantage in schooling, <laughs> like disadvantage in higher education, disadvantage when you're trying to apply for a job. And then later in the book, I speak about, I think, some research from the Trades Unions Congress that shows like literal pay inequality between white people, white British people and people who are not white, yet British, despite the higher qualifications. And for me, I think the, the point that I was trying to make when I tried to, when I was pulling that data together was that I actually don't think the teachers who are under who are undermarking black children, like I don't think that they're fully ma- like paid up members of the BMP or you know whatever the far right party is today. I don't think that they think themselves are, as racist. I don't think that the people who are um, going through CVs, uh, you know, in HR in the private and public sector, they're not saying I'm racist and proud. <laughs> Yet the the bias yeah. persists, right? I mean, most people, I think. You know, at the level of conversation, you know, the, just the anti, the simple anti-racist argument has been one. Most people aren't walking around thinking of themselves as racist, but as white people are carrying white privilege. So how, how do you start to fix that? Is it an individual level by hearing stories in the way we do in your book and hearing about your experience? Or does it need to be something that is done top down as a society or some combination of both? I think. I think that the solutions come from all places. So obviously as an author and as somebody who's active in the cultural sphere, I'm very, very into changing hearts and minds. And, you know, in my opinion, top down approaches, which, you know, I think are, are like objectively good can provoke resentment in people who don't understand why they're happening in the first place. And so I think my job as a, as an author is to, win hearts and minds so that when that top-down work, like, for example, positive discrimination happens, people are like, well, I'm on board with that because I understand the point of it, you know? Because it's something you've come around, as a teenager, it was something that that you were unconvinced of and it's something you've come come around to as you've got older. Yeah, I mean, but when I was a teenager, like, I take into account my background, you know, I, I grew up in Tottenham. I went to school in Haringey. Like I lived a super, you know, super multicultural, like mixed communities areas of of, of Britain. So the idea of, and and pretty working class as well. Like I wasn't exposed to 
people like much more advantaged than me until I started to try and like graduate and get out into the job market. So I didn't actually understand what the problem looked like. So, you know, when, um, you know, and I write about this in the book, when um, my mum suggested that I apply for a positive action scheme at a a newspaper, I was shocked. I was like, "But, but why should I like this is special treatment? That's until I got to the offices and I was like, oh, oh, okay. This is not like the environment that I'm going to school in or the the streets that I'm walking in Tottenham. This is a very different environment indeed. And I realised what the point of it was. There's some, just to come back to something you mentioned there, you, you write uh, later in the book about intersectionality and and gender and, and class. How, how do you think that sort of plays into this wider conversation? I think that I tried my absolute hardest in the book to really demonstrate how... So, for example, when we're talking about racism, well, the majority of black people in this country are working class. So it's not it's not just a, you know, a isolated conversation to wealth inequality. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, when I think about who um, comes to my house to deliver me uber eats or who's picking me up in an uber or or delivering me food in on delivery or a pizza or something like it's the kind it's it's people who like i lived around when i was living in tottenham and to some extent where, where i live now so and those issues of things like you know the gig economy and you know zero hour contracts to me that seems very much tied into like broader issues to do with like wealth inequality racism you know precarious work all of that stuff and I feel I tried my hardest in the book to demonstrate that but I think in the broader public conversation these things aren't always linked together Um, and what I'm talking about there is intersectionality right so I it's to me it's not sufficient to talk about class over there and race over there Um, and I think that Sometimes the dividing of these issues are, are, um, is what's allowed a, a sort of like pernicious narrative of the white working class um, that really like pits people who really don't have much yeah, <laughs> in the yeah. first place against each other. See, I think maybe the issue about sort of white privilege is that there are lots of white people who feel very unprivileged. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Some people might say, I'm not saying whether I agree with this or not, I'm not sure, that I think the book is incredibly compelling, so this is sort of not to not to in any way diminish that. I think maybe there's an issue about talking about white people in general without sort of narrating that there's like white people who are like, you know, super rich and doing incredibly well and benefiting from great things. And then there are white people who are like really got massive barriers them themselves. Which is where the intersectionality yes. comes in. Yes. Yeah, and that's that's a separate thing to some of the other stuff you write about about just sort of walking round and and feeling other or yes, being other. Yes, it's, 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 yes. Well, you know those those white people who had nothing. I grew up next yes. door to them, like yeah. or in yeah. the council flat that I, you know, I yeah. spent like the first six years of my life in. Like yeah. I grew up next door to them and f- felt a strong affinity yeah. until the far right came in and said to. People like, you know, I can remember I when I was uh, like six years old, my best friend was this little white boy called Callum and we went around everywhere in South London. And the far right came in and they told people like Callum and his mum that they had more of a right to the resources of this country yeah. than 
yeah. me and my mum yeah. because they were white. Or worse, that their <laughs> problems were being caused by people like you and your, you know what I mean? Indeed, I mean, yeah. A, and we were both two kids with single, single yeah. mums, you know, growing up in South London. So for me, it, I actually don't think that the that the work that I'm doing is trying to negate like no, the no. hardship that he and his mum no. were dealing with, but rather to illuminate that. And objectively, like I don't know how Callum's doing now, but me personally, I'm doing well. Like my book's yeah. done well. Like I've, I've moved class. Like I'm, I'm living a comfortable life. Um, and that's something that I continue to like attempt to recognize. And I don't wish to advance a narrative of I'm struggling simply because I'm black like yes everyday racism still happens to me um but frankly like I'm fine <laughs> um there's a really good interview in in the book one of the bits that stood out for me was an interview with a mixed race girl yeah. which, which kind yeah. of um speaks to I agree. this I think doesn't yeah, it yeah yeah but I, I mean what what I was saying is white privilege is an advantage it it doesn't negate like class discrimination it doesn't negate uh, gender discrimination but rather it's uh the gross racial disparities in things like you know that dwp like study that i i speak of um means that there are still some discriminations and stereotypes that are putting barriers in the face of people who frankly don't deserve it for largely arbitrary reasons that have everything to do with a sense of like of systemic racism and that's and that's not me saying that um white people who are working class don't deal with class discrimination you deal with this a bit in the book and maybe it's a sort of slightly stupid question but what do you think white people should be doing um well i think that and like i say it's been two years since the book came out so i've had a lot of time to reflect and something that I have, a conclusion that I've drawn is that the book is like, it's an analysis and it it exists to be applied, right? Like for me, anti-racism is something that needs to be applied in whatever sphere or, or field that you're in. So just like a, an analysis of like gender discrimination, like once you have the tools to make it, then you can start to see in your own life, in your own spheres of influence, oh, I, I see what that is. And I think that I can change that situation, you know. How? I don't wish to say. But really what I wanted the book to, to do, and, you know, I even say towards the end of the preface, I hope you use this as a tool, was to essentially provide people with the tools to make, the that analysis it's so strange because in writing and you know I think you can tell I'm a writer I love to write alone and I didn't really think that I was going to be speaking for anybody or on behalf of anyone and you know that's why I've never been great when I was in student politics and people were sort of pushing me to actually go into actual politics I was like no thank you I just need to be like speaking on behalf of myself so you made a wise choice I'd say based <laughs> of my experience it's been really mind-blowing to me if, when people come up to me and they say, you've spoken for me, you know, and I feel heard by your, your work. I didn't anticipate that. And it's happened in, in Britain and outside of Britain. And so that's something that um, consistently, I suppose, shocks me. For me, I think the, the more distance I have from the book, the more I can think about that sense of just feeling so unheard. Like I felt so unheard, so frustrated. Every time I turned on the news and... I was like, 
this is not the right angle. Like you're missing something. You're missing something. I felt like that all the time. That sense of urgency, I think, you know, found its way into the book. And I, and I, I hear from readers, they have caught that urgency. And, you know, that really blows my mind. What's next? What's next? Is it a secret? Well, I haven't signed on the dotted line for whatever's next. I'm thinking about things. <laughs> I'm thinking about things. I'm doing a lot of reading. And um, I've also been touring the book a lot because it's out in about five or six languages, a lot in Europe. Uh, I've been blown away by the people who've reached out to me from around the world and said, this same power structure, this same system of domination is... Um, is prevalent in my country and that's made me feel that's given me a sense of perspective it's made me feel a sense of affinity and um i suppose a shared experience with people who are navigating the uh, similar structures because colonialism you know really was a global project i've just done so much learning since the book came out and i feel i'm a better person for it it's made me the sense of perspective it's given me has been incredible and i think whatever comes next whether that be a book, I suppose if people want a book from me, um, it's going to be informed by that. I've also sort of come away with a sense of solidified understanding of of the point of this book. And, and I think everybody who's read that opening blog post can feel the sense of despair and pessimism <laughs> that, that was in it. And a sense of essentially just giving up, <laughs> you know, I really did give up. And the shift that I think that the book has made in a lot of people's minds really does confirm to me that what I was talking about in that book is an ideology. Much like Noam Chomsky like talks about capitalism and he speaks about the ideology and he wants you to see what, what it looks like. And reading some of his work made me think, oh God, okay, I never really thought about it like that. Readers who've come back to me and said that they now see what that ideology looks like and how it's harming people. like It just confirms to me that that it's learnt and it can be unlearned. That's been a sort of like profound and largely positive learning experience as well. So whatever comes next is going to be informed by the all of the learning that I've done in the last couple of years. Well, I was I was going to finish by asking you to give us something to be cheerful about, but I think you've just just kind of done that. Yeah, by I'm, describing your experience. I think it's really important because you know we're in a time now where people are pointing out social injustice here, there, and everywhere, and. We're all pretty angry and annoyed and upset about it for obvious reasons. Um, but I kind of feel like we can go either one or two ways. We can be like, well, it's just innate. <laughs> and we like take a route that some people who fancy themselves as sociobiologists, so, oh, this is just how people are. This is just it. Or we can be like, actually, it can be shifted, you know. Like for me, the question is now, what do we do with this acknowledgement? Ultimately, um, I really do not want to be dealing with the same the same types of frustrations that I had in fifty years' time, if right. if the if the Earth is still here, of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other depressing conversation. Isn't it? Uh, Rennie, thank you so much. It's been a, it's a real real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. Cheerful Book Club is produced by Emma Corsham and Joel Pierce for Cheerful Productions in association with Goldfish London. Support for Cheerful Book Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more.